From Furman University Shy Institute for Sustainable Communities, I'm Caroline Ring, and this is another Upstate Anecdote. Today, I have the tremendous pleasure of welcoming Ms. Kate Weaver-Patterson and Dr. Brittany Arseniega to discuss their ongoing lawsuit against Spartanburg County Detention Center and other criminal justice issues. Kate is the South Carolina Site Director and Managing Attorney for Root and Rebound, which is an organization that works both out of California and South Carolina, whose mission is to advocate for communities harmed by mass incarceration. Brittany is an Assistant Professor of Politics and International Affairs at Furman University and a leader of the Justicia Project, which operates as a partnership between the Politics Department at Furman and the law firm Weish PA, where Dr. Arsniega is of counsel. Thank you both so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much, Caroline, for having us. So first, let me provide a little background for our listeners. In May, Root and Rebound and Weish PA joined the American Civil Liberties Union of South Carolina and South Carolina Appleseed Legal Justice Center in a lawsuit challenging the Spartanburg County Detention Center's treatment of incarcerated individuals in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. But before we start kind of diving into the content of the suit, would you both just kind of explain your involvement with the case, maybe starting with you, Kate? Sure. So uh, as you said, I'm the, the director in South Carolina for Root and Rebound, and we run a statewide program called the Second Chance Justice Collaborative. And in that, we do direct client services, policy advocacy, and education. Uh, and one of the reasons that we do all of those things, and when I say policy advocacy, we think of that pretty broadly. So that can include things like uh, legislation, which we do a lot of, but also things like impact litigation, which is how we would categorize the Spartanburg County Jail case. And a lot of organizations do one or the other when it comes to direct services or policy advocacy. And there are organizations that just do one that do phenomenal work, but we feel really strongly about doing both because in in doing the direct services, we feel that that is really able to guide where we go with our policy advocacy. And with Spartanburg and, and just jail and prison conditions generally, we were very well aware as the, um, the only organization in the state that focuses exclusively on reentry from the legal side that these these issues were happening around the country and we knew that they had to be happening here. The ACLU and South Carolina Appleseed both do phenomenal policy advocacy around criminal justice reform and we work with them frequently on a lot of different issues. And the ACLU had taken the lead on a litigation against the South Carolina Department of Corrections. But we knew that COVID-19 was particularly dangerous for folks in carceral settings. Um, and when we say carceral settings, we mean where people are detained. So that can be prisons, jails, ICE detention centers. And so the, the ACLU was uh, working with a law firm on the SEDC litigation, but we had real concerns and we're hearing from our direct services and from the ACLU's hotline that they had set up, that there were significant problems within our state jails to include and particularly at Spartanburg County. Um, and so based on that, we launched an investigation and, and put this incredible litigation team together to get the lawsuit filed. 
Amazing. Brittany, could you also speak on your role in this process? I am not as involved in the case as Kate is or as my colleagues at WHICH are uh, because, you know, as you know, my full-time job is as a professor at Furman, but I, I am an attorney part-time with WHICH and all of the attorneys in the firm are able to see when new cases come in uh, because we all get an email saying, you know, here, we'd like to take this kind of case. Does anyone have a conflict, right? So in the, in the process of uh, checking for conflicts, I often see cases that my colleagues, my senior colleagues are working on, and it's a way to try to get involved if there's something that's particularly uh, interesting to me. So when I saw this case come into my inbox, I knew right away I wanted to be at at least somewhat involved because of my interest in the criminal justice system. And so I asked if I could you know, join the team. And so again, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not a litigator by training. And so the, my senior colleagues at White's are the ones taking the lead on the legal work, on our part of the legal work, but I am really enjoying learning and watching from the other senior litigators about the process. Amazing. Well, as I was reading the Spartanburg Jail complaint published by the ACLU of South Carolina, several things about the suit stood out to me. But what struck me the most was kind of diving deeper into the protections that y'all are arguing for. Like just pulling a few direct quotes from that complaint, I learned that individuals detained at Spartanburg Jail are given a change of clothing once, sometimes twice a week, are provided one towel and one rag for the week, which they're required to use to wash themselves, their cell, and their utensils, and that indigent individuals receive one small bar of soap, while non-indigent individuals must purchase their own soap for personal cleaning. And I mean, COVID aside, these conditions are abysmal. Um, from y'all's understanding, are these conditions generally the norm for county jails across the country? I would say uh, two things. One, from the outset, we we should certainly say that this is still pending litigation, um, and so the uh, the the facts as we allege them and as we we think that things would would play out once a judge makes a determination in the case that there there's would be areas perhaps where the defendants would disagree with with the facts. But one of the things that we have done in the, the jail litigation and one of the things that we try and do generally, we believe that the people who are best equipped to give information about what's going on inside and really um, certainly participate, if not lead the dialogue around conditions and criminal justice reform generally are people who have been directly impacted. And so that's the approach that, that we have taken in Spartanburg County and any other case we have is to try and talk to as many people who are personally experiencing this as, as we can. And in the case, we have filed a lot of affidavits which are publicly available that are from people who are either still currently detained at the jail um, or have been detained at the jail talking about these types of conditions. 
And unfortunately, the answer to your question is yes, that these conditions are are not unusual. Um, and one of the things that, that I would encourage your listeners to really grapple with and that, that we hope that some of the discussion around criminal justice reform will will focus on is the humanity of the people we are incarcerating in our country, which is 2.2 million people. Um, that's a 500% increase over the last 40 years. These are people uh, who we are keeping in cages, often four people to a six by eight cage. Um, in the case of the Spartanburg County Jail and most other county jails around the country, these are people who have not yet been convicted of a crime, so they are being held pre-trial. And so often, the within our criminal justice system, the the humanity of those incarcerated in jails or in prisons. So, just in case people don't understand, jail is is typically where people are held pre-trial before they're convicted and prisons are, are where people go after they've been convicted. And that the humanity of, of those people is, is ignored. Um, and that is problematic for the conditions inside and the fact that none of us would want to have to work out and eat and sleep in the same set of clothes for three or four days. The little things like that degrade the humanity of the people who have to experience that. And, and when we treat people like that and, and take away some of their humanity, that has an impact on their stress, on their outlook of how they are able to interact with, with the world and with the government. Uh, it's, it's really detrimental, I think, across the board. So that's a long way of saying, yes, these conditions are not unusual. So some of the policy and procedural changes that are also mentioned in your litigation um, is that you would fight for both staff and incarcerated individuals to have free and unlimited access to soap, disinfecting cleaners, and PPE. And we've already kind of touched on how Spartanburg Jail in the complaint mentions that, well, y'all mentioned in the complaint that non-indigent individuals must purchase their own soap. But what does non-indigent really mean? Like, is there an established criteria? Does it differ by locality? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, in Spartanburg County, indigence means, for purposes of whether or not you're entitled to free soap, it means that no one has ever put any money on your commissary account. So in jails, there is almost like a canteen a lot of times, and you can buy, you know, sometimes snacks or soap that's not like hotel soap. Um, if you want, you know, antibacterial soap, you have to buy that. If money has never been put on that account for you to make phone calls, for you to send letters, for you to get snacks, then you are considered to be indigent. But one really important thing to keep in mind, and and Brittany um, I'm, may may have some insights on this too, based on her research. But when we look at the criminal justice system and who we are incarcerating, both pretrial and post-trial, it is highly disproportionately people of color and people who are living in poverty. 
So oftentimes folks who are sitting in our county jails are in fact indigent in, in the ways that we would think of it outside of that commissary account. Um, because two, oftentimes people have to sit in county jails if they are too poor to pay bail to get out. So if you or I were arrested and were being held, it's likely that we would be able to pay the bail that is set and be released pending disposition of our case. But a lot of folks living in poverty can't do that. Mm -hmm. Brittany, do you have anything to add to that? Absolutely. The criminal justice system divides people in a way that is often pretty arbitrary based on income. So most of us at some point in our lives, often at some point every day, commit something or do something for which we could be arrested, right? Driving infractions are a really common one. Many of us commit, right, driving, we break traffic laws every time we get in the car, but not all of us get caught. And we know that there are patterns in regards to who gets caught. Uh, and not everybody that gets caught has the same post-arrest experience, right? So people who do the exact same kinds of things, right? Traffic violations or drug use, right? Drug possession. Your experience depends to a great extent on how much money you have, right? Can you post bail and get out? So you never have to go through what the folks incarcerated in Spartanburg County are going through. Can you hire a very skilled and well-connected defense attorney? And all of those things take money. And, and so unfortunately, we do see a situation in which many of the people who are incarcerated are not necessarily worse people than anybody else. Right. They certainly have made mistakes uh, and made, you know, in the vocabulary of a parent of a three and six year old, three and six year old children, they've made bad choices. But how much you are able to recover from those bad choices certainly depends to a, a disproportionate extent on your income. Absolutely. So just coming from the experience of listening to the interviews of six men from Soteria, which were featured on the last Upstate Anecdote, a lot of the inhumanity and discrimination you both have spoken to are certainly evident in their lives. These issues seem so big, almost too big to fix. I mean, where can we go from here? If you could implement any policy, how much of that would even fix this problem, this discrimination? Changing policy takes politics, right? And we know that as a group, people who are incarcerated are not a sympathetic group. Uh, so, you know, it, it is extraordinarily hard for reformers to achieve anything that is perceived to benefit incarcerated people. 
because the argument is always, well, what about their victims? Or what about, uh, why are we prioritizing this, right? So it really takes, a, you have to work really hard to frame criminal justice reform as something that isn't about just helping those bad people and instead thinking about how most people who are incarcerated are themselves victims, right? So that label often switches multiple times in the course of a lifetime. If you suffer victimization at a young age, you're more likely to become, right, to commit certain kinds of crime. And even if you commit crime, you're still much more likely when you leave to be victimized. Uh, so framing it as an issue that impacts everyone, right, not just people who for the moment are seen as being, um, you know, criminals, but also framing it as a, sometimes as an issue of economics, right, that, you know, most people who are incarcerated are not going to be there for the rest of their lives. It's extraordinarily expensive to incarcerate people. And if we think about, okay, if we know that most people incarcerated are not going to spend their lives there, if we know how expensive it is, how can we most make people full, robust members of society? It is surely not by treating them like animals when they're incarcerated, right? That is not how you get people to come out feeling vibrant and ready and recovered and excited about contributing to society, right? That's not how you do it. So it's hard to communicate that nuance though. Yeah, and I think what I would add to that is that much like the reckoning that we are having in this country generally, the first step in really being able to make a change is acknowledging that the system is set up in a way that perpetuates racism and socioeconomic discrimination. And, and folks have a really hard time sometimes acknowledging that. And, and I think they think that it means that if we acknowledge that the whole thing crumbles or the whole thing is uh, we're saying that everyone who works as a police officer or as a prosecutor is, is bad and is perpetuating the system. And I'm a former prosecutor. I did domestic violence and child abuse prosecutions for five years. And I'm really proud of the work that I did at the solicitor's office. And I worked with incredible people, most of whom were really trying to do the right thing. But the important thing to understand about systemic racism is that it is not dependent in any way, shape, or form on individual action. I tell groups all the time, every single human being in the entire world has bias um, or prejudice. All of us, no matter what color you are, no matter where you live, every single person on the planet has prejudice. Every single person discriminates against other people based on that prejudice. But every other person 
does not is not able to have that discrimination systemized in a way that white people in America have that systemized to their benefit and to people of color's detriment. And that does not mean that that every single white person, you know, we've we've gotten to the point where racist is a bad word. And um, the the book White Fragility talks a lot about this. And I think it's an important dialogue because until we can acknowledge that we are all biased and discriminatory and that the systems themselves are are racist and that we as white people benefit from that and and are racist because those discriminations are systemized, then we're not going to be able to move forward. Um, and so I, I think that we, we do have a lot of work to do and we could we could do a whole hour podcast on what I think the policy changes are that need to be made. But I think as a starting point, we have to acknowledge that while there are incredible things about our legal system, um, incredible building blocks, and ways that if it were, and when it works correctly, it is one of the best in the world, it is also inherently racist. And we've got to fix that to move forward. And I think that is a nice lead in because the thing about systemic racism is it's just so interconnected into so many facets of society. So partially shifting gears, because I know, Kate, you wanted to discuss the issue of voting. And as a politics major myself, I'm not going to ever say no to that. So I want to expand our conversation to examining South Carolina's voting laws and how they impact individuals who are currently or previously incarcerated in For our listeners to provide some context, in South Carolina, individuals convicted of a felony or a misdemeanor are disenfranchised, meaning deprived of the right to vote, until the full completion of their sentences. This includes any period of probation or parole. So from my understanding, this means that if an individual cannot pay probation fees or other legal debts, they will not be granted their right to vote despite serving their time. Is that inaccurate? understanding? And if so, how does this relate to that interconnectivity of class in the criminal justice system that we've already kind of discussed? So you've hit the nail on the head in terms of identifying the issue. And there's not a great and clear-cut answer that I can give, but I I feel really strongly about this, and so I'm glad that you ask, even though it's a bit of a, a complex subject. So to start, you are absolutely correct in how and when folks are disenfranchised and then regain the right to vote. Regaining that right to vote is automatic. For a misdemeanor, uh, it's a little bit different. Misdemeanor, actually, you are only disenfranchised if you are incarcerated as part of your sentence. So the minute you walk out of jail for a misdemeanor, you're done, even if there are fines and fees associated with that. With a felony, you have to, quote, complete your sentence. And there is a question that has been litigated around the country about what that means when it comes to fines and fees. 
And I think it's really important for people to understand that much like you said, Caroline, the, um, the, this is another area, even outside the voting context, where our criminal justice system is incredibly heavy handed against poor people. Because a $50 fine to a lot of folks listening to this podcast is probably not that big of a deal. A $50 fine that continues to accrue interest or late payments uh, and is, is a huge deal to people who are not able to keep the lights on every month. And a $50 fine is chump change compared to what most fines and fees in the criminal justice system are. And so not only um, can can that really be harmful for someone's economic opportunities, it can actually cause things like you getting, failing to pay fines can cause you to get your driver's license suspended. And then you don't have a way to get to work. And so you drive without a license and you continue to get driving under suspension tickets until you have enough of them and then they charge you with a felony known as habitual traffic offender, which is a five-year felony. Uh, and so we we penalize people for not being able to to pay and fines and fees are an incredibly important area of criminal justice reform. But to get back to your question of fines and fees in the voting context, in South Carolina, our position at the Second Chance Justice Collaborative and Root and Rebound is that you do not have to have paid your fines and fees to have your right to vote restored. We have something in South Carolina called administrative monitoring, and that means that you've completed all the other sections of your um, your and requirements of your parole or probation, and you just owe fines and fees. And we are are hopeful and are working with a lot of different agencies to clarify that and be sure that one that information is given out uh, and two that folks understand and are getting the right information from probation and parole to be able to go register because that's a really important thing to flag that while voting rights are automatically restored folks do have to re-register. And a lot of times the Elections Commission office will require them to bring a letter from the Department of Probation and Parole saying that they have completed their sentence. So we want to be sure that we're all on the same page about what that means. Um, But under our current law, as it stands, we don't believe that that means you should have to pay your your fines and fees um, if that's the only thing remaining, Um, because really that amounts to a modern-day poll tax. That was actually one of my questions. Is is that an apt comparison? I think it's absolutely an apt comparison. When you look at who is involved in our system, you know, one in three black men is going to go to prison during their lifetime. Um, one in 18 black women, uh, which is incredibly disproportionate in terms of of who we're sending to prison in South Carolina, less than a third of our population is black, but 60% of our prison population is black. And again, so much of the the focus in criminal justice, both in terms of what neighborhoods are policed, when people are, are kind of forced into a cycle of, of crime depends on poverty. 
And so when you have the combination of the the disparate racial impact plus the the socioeconomic status of most folks within the system, yes, I think it is absolutely an appropriate analogy to say that that it is a, a modern day poll tax in a way that we are keeping important essential voices from our community from the polls. It's also important to remember though that uh laws that prevent folks with criminal records from voting uh don't impact both major political parties equally, right? And so there are incentives, there are more incentives for Republicans to keep uh those kinds of laws in place because you know, as Kate said, our criminal justice system is disproportionately populated by people of color who also overwhelmingly vote for Democrats, right? And so just like with poll taxes, you saw, you know, huge resistance to the elimination of poll taxes, largely along party lines, right? But you have the same thing now that reform around making it easier for people to vote has now become a, another partisan party issue, right? So you have uh, the one example I've seen recently, you have folks in Florida, and Kate, you may have seen this, but you know, Democrats in Florida are raising money to pay off outstanding fines and fees so that people with criminal records can be able to vote in this upcoming election. That's a really an excellent example of the of the ways in which political parties have different incentives here. And I think it's important to mention about the Florida case to one of the reasons, and if folks aren't aware of this, um, in I think, Brittany, correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was 2018 when the referendum passed really overwhelmingly by the Florida's, Florida's population in general to do away with the felony ban on folks voting. Uh, and then the, the legislature, which was a majority Republican at the time, made a change to that where fines and fees had to be paid. And that has been litigated. And one of the major issues that came up in the litigation and the reason that the district court, after holding an eight-day trial, decided that, that that mandate of the payment of fines and fees could not be put in place was because the state could not identify what fines and fees people actually owed. And so they were putting them in this situation where people they couldn't tell people what they owed. So people couldn't pay it, but then they were telling people they couldn't vote. And so it was this catch-22 of, I can't do what you're asking me to do, but then if I go out and vote, you're potentially going to arrest me for illegal voting. And there is a fascinating case that I would encourage everybody to, to take a look at. There's a woman by the name of Crystal Mason out of Texas, and the ACLU is currently appealing her case because she had had a felony. She thought she had the right to vote, and she went and filled out a provisional ballot. And as a result, turns out, you know, under Texas law, they, they said that she couldn't because she was still on probation and they arrested and tried her for illegal voting and she's been sentenced to five years in prison. 
And, and so, and that case is under appeal and hopefully is, is going to be successful. But that just goes to show how, you know, we, you can't, one, taking away people's right to vote is so central to who they are as people. And I think it really goes back to the humanity that we were talking about earlier. Um, two, like we said, those voices of those who are directly impacted are so essential at, at the polls. And three, there are really ridiculous efforts being made to keep folks out of the polls, even when the state can't justify that by saying, we do know what you owe and here's what it is. So kind of touching on that push for the recognition of humanity, Jerry Blossomgame, founder of Soteria, partner of the Second Chance Justice Collaborative that you've talked about, Kate, often says, if you've never needed grace, you don't understand extending grace. How do you both think that this notion of not personally relating to issues, whether it's because you're of a higher class or of a different race, how do you think that impacts society's ability to empathize and seek restorative justice? Well, Brittany and I are both the mothers of young toddlers. And I think we could definitively say that we all need grace starting at a very, very young age. Uh, and the flip side of that is we as mothers need grace. So anybody who thinks that they don't and have not been extended grace is kidding themselves. Where we get twisted around is in thinking that the grace or privilege that we experience um, often as, and I know people can't, I'm, I'm talking like people can see me. Um, those who are listening who can't see me, I am a white woman who has experienced, you know, I'm a lawyer. A, I, I have a ton of privilege in, in my life, right? My children are, are white. And I particularly think about this for my son, um, the amount of privilege that he has and the importance of teaching him that grace and privilege that are extended to him are not anything that he has earned. It is something that he has, has, has not earned. It's the opposite of, of earned. And, and yet we, so I think we, we look at this where as humans, we want grace to be extended to us, but we, we want privilege to be extended to us, but we are so hesitant to extend that to others or see ourselves in what they're doing. And it can become a very us versus them uh, in a way that is just a false narrative. Yeah, like, like Kate says, it's, I think the quote that, that you mentioned, Caroline, about for those, you know, who have never understood, who have never needed grace, it's hard to extend grace. And I do, I think some people, like Kate said, believe that whatever good things they have in their life have happened because they have earned them and they have worked hard, right? I worked hard. I earned my degree, right? I earned my job with this salary. 
But I think in reality, folks lose sight of the fact that so much of the goodness in our lives is an accident of our birth, right? Who were you born to? What kinds of resources did your parents have? Where did they send you to school? What kind of, you know, what did they pour into your education and your training and your development? And at a younger age, I thought that I too had worked for everything that I had until I, you know, sort of you spend it, but you really, the problem, you have to spend time. You have to spend a lot of time with people who are very different from you in order to comprehend that what you have is not simply a side effect of you being so hardworking. She's exactly right. And one of the things that I uh, would say in addition to that is, you know, one example that, that I talk about with privilege and, and we go back to this, it goes back to this idea of like, what is, um, you know, I think people can get really defensive when either one, you say you didn't work hard for what you got or two, that you are racist or discriminatory. And so I think it's it's always important to start the conversation in saying one of the things that I loved about some of the social media that's been going on about racial, you know, reckoning in the uh in the country is there was a meme that said it's white privilege is doesn't mean that you haven't had a hard life. It means that the color of your skin is not one of the things that has made it harder. And the flip of that is, is also true. I did not, I got where I am because yes, I worked hard. I, I have, I have spent a lot of nights up writing briefs. I've spent a lot of nights in a law school library and an undergrad library in high school. Absolutely. I have worked hard, but did I start out in a two parent household where Somebody fed me breakfast every morning and sent me to school and checked my homework at night. Yes. Does that make all the difference in the world? Absolutely. And if you tell yourself otherwise, you're kidding yourself. Um, and I think the same is true with the prejudice and discrimination. And one example that I will give on this is, you know, like we said, everybody has has prejudice and everybody turns that into discrimination. But if Jerry Blasingame and I are driving down the same street and we are experiencing road rage at the other because of certain assumptions that we might make he about me as a privileged white woman, me about him as a black man, if we didn't know each other. And uh, let's say we make those assumptions we're experiencing road rage as a result. So we're both, we both have prejudice or bias against the other person, not knowing them and, and making assumptions simply based on, on race or what people are driving. Um, and we both might act on those with road rage and cutting each other off. But if after that, both of us call the cops, my experience with the cops as a white woman in a minivan with two toddlers in the back is very likely going to be different than Jerry's as a black man. Those police officers, good humans as they likely are, are not going to approach my car thinking of me as a suspect. 
they are very likely to approach Jerry's thinking of his as a him as a suspect based on nothing other than his skin color. And so I think that 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 understanding that narrative is is important in understanding how these these things become so insidious and ingrained and therefore not one person's fault but the responsibility of all of us to change what's going on I think we don't often realize how lucky our lives have been right how much like Kate says the the word privilege is pretty fraught but until you spend time with people who don't have it, you often don't see it in yourselves, right? So when you're surrounded by folks in when you're in a neighborhood, right, and everybody grew up kind of like you, you don't see it. And it really takes getting out of your race or your class uh, to understand, oh, wow, people in the United States have significantly different lived experiences. And those lived experiences often correlate pretty closely to things like race and class. Absolutely. Well, I thank you guys so much for your time and your wisdom. This conversation has been super enlightening and I'm sure everyone listening will agree. And there's so much to unpack here, but for everyone listening, I really want to challenge you all to take that step that Brittany just mentioned to get out of your own lived experiences and to learn by listening. So thank you both. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you so much, Caroline.